Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. You're out of the will. That's what my grandpa used to tell me all the time. He liked to use uh, inheritance, our inheritance as kind of a carrot and a stick to motivate our behavior. Despite the fact that that's not how inheritance works, we're the grandkids. It doesn't just randomly skip a generation. But he used to tell me that all the time. I was out of the will or I was moving down in the will. And every time he did, my angelic little serpent of a sister would come in with her little puppy dog eyes. Grandpa, I love you. Like I just drove him crazy, right? I beat him in a board game. I did something he didn't like. I'm moving down, and then she just makes sure to kind of contrast it so that she knows, like, this is what you could have been. This is all the things that your grandson could have been, but it's not because I'm better. And so, basically, I just, like, remember the story of Jacob and Esau where you got, like, the, the firstborn watching his birthright getting taken by his younger sibling? Like, I lived that. <laughs> but he liked my, we like to joke about that. Our family talked about it all the time, which is kind of strange because we don't talk a lot about inheritance anymore. It's not a big part of, of culture or our understanding. But in the ancient world, it was huge. An angel were part of like your pride in your own life and what you were doing was living a legacy. And so you would work and focus and drive yourself to leave something for your children, to leave an inheritance. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this is our third week in the book of Ephesians and we have made it all the way to verse 11. So we are trucking along at the pace of refrigerated molasses and this week, we got to start off by building at what we looked at last week. It's verses 3 through 14, all one great big long sentence. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. One sentence, 200 words. Hey, that's a lot of words. And so what it looked at last week as we started this off was that before the foundations of the earth, God chose us to be his, adopted us into his family through Jesus, out of his love and grace being lavished upon us. The last two weeks have been really interesting because the first week, Pastor Rick talked, and the letter opens as Paul often does. He opens and closes his letters with grace and peace, so I have that as the signature on my email. And so Pastor Rick says, hey, I want everybody to email Pastor Tyler. And I thought, I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to spend like three hours of my week just like responding to all the, like the, hey, emails. You know how many emails I got over the course of the week? It was awesome. Oh, man, he was trying to mess with me, and he failed completely, and I've never been more excited about watching something not happen than a preacher said to do in a service before. Fantastic. I'm so proud of all of you for not doing what Rick said. Um, my heart is full from that. <laughs> but what did happen is that last week, I got a lot of emails, because we open up this text that deals with election and predestination, and that causes a whole bunch of questions. So because we're kind of building off of that, I want to make sure that we put the proper understanding in place. I refer to the issue that we're looking at as a theological cul-de-sac because people on all sides of it are still Christian. These are brothers and sisters. We think of it like a spectrum. 
of the election of God and the choice of man. I don't say free will because the concept of that is laughable, but that's a different subject for a different time. Doesn't matter, but think of that like a spectrum, right? On one side you got this, one side you got that. Doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum. Okay, we're all Christians. We all love Jesus. The important thing to note is this is what's called an open-handed issue. So we have the freedom to discuss it. We have the freedom to have fun, respectful debates about it. We have the freedom to disagree about where we should fall on this spectrum. What we don't have the freedom biblically to do is divide over this issue. That is an offense to the Holy Spirit. But I want to clarify a couple of things inside the fence of this random discussion. Not random, but, you know, big discussion. There are two things that are, un, that are changed based on where you fall on the spectrum and three things that are absolutely not in any way. The two things that change is how we are saved and when that salvation occurred. That's the only two things that are altered by where you fit in your view of election or the choice of man. Here's what doesn't change. Who is saved? Right? We hear it go, oh, well, what about the same people? It's the same people that are saved. The same people belong to Jesus. Everybody is the same. We're just talking about how they got saved, not who is saved. The who remains the same. The why remains the same. Whether you fall on this side or this side, the why we are saved is because God loved us and out of his lavish love for us, he pours out his grace upon us. And most importantly, the what remains the same. What we are called to do with the gospel is unchanged. Because sometimes what happens, right, when you hear this idea of God having chosen before the creation of the world, we go, oh, if it's all predestined, and we're all just robots who don't have any choice, then we don't have to do anything. Absolutely, unequivocally wrong in every way. What we are called to do in the gospel, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, is exactly the same. Prayer, evangelism, preaching the gospel, growing in Jesus, all that we are called to do in Jesus is the same regardless of where you are. Because what we're talking about is this incredible mystery of who God is, which we cannot and will not fully understand because God is bigger than us. Think of it like this. God is the beach your understanding is a pair of tweezers, right? You could spend your whole life out on that beach plucking up sand. You ain't going to make a difference. You're not going to fully grasp or capture all that is the beach. It's too big for us in this life. But sometimes we let the mystery drive us to inactivity. That's not what we're supposed to do with this. This is about helping us understand who we are in Jesus and how to live faithfully for him. So with that said, we dive into our text, starting in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So right here, what we see is that salvation is the work of God, and that he chooses salvation according to his purpose and the counsel of his will. Do you know what is missing in this language? <laughs> you... Me, a magical prayer, our response, our choice, our decision. There's no part of this that shows anything about what we do. Because biblically, the only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is the need for it. The salvation that is being done by God is according to the purpose of his counsel and will. 
So that we, the we is a reference to the Jews who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you, that's the Gentiles or everyone else, also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our, that's Jews and Gentiles together, inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what Paul says is that salvation is not just for a specific nation. And we go, cool, I've heard that before, obviously, because we're not all living in Israel and Israelites. But for the time, this was a huge revelation. In the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel to be his, set them apart as a holy nation for thousands of years. They were punished for associating with other nations. So they kind of learn to build up a wall around themselves to keep everybody else out. And then Jesus comes along and he smashes down the wall. Because the gospel of Jesus is for all people, for all who receive him and for all who are in him. And it brings us together in unity for the praise and glory of Jesus. Nations and people previously divided brought together under the banner of Jesus. I would have a hard time coming up with anything that would make us more different from the world around us in our present culture. Right? We live in a cancel culture, right? which is just another way of saying it's a toxic culture, where nobody agrees about anything. Right? We argue and we bicker, we post long rants and hateful comments on social media because we're too scared to actually look someone in the face and too indecent to treat them like a human being. We divide over gender, divide over race, divide over politics, and the divisions, they just seem to be getting bigger. Or both sides blame the other side for all the problems and the struggles they see in the world around them. Well, it's you guys. No, it's you guys. And we just argue. But in Jesus, that which unites us is greater than that which divides us. We are, as the people of God, for those who are in him, called to be unified. That is made one that is diversity in harmony, working together for the glory of Jesus. We are united not by social issue or political construct, but by Jesus, because we all need Jesus the same. Okay, so it does not matter if you were saved out of a crazy sin or you were saved out of a crazy Bible study. Right, we all need Jesus whether you were rescued from rebellion or rescued from religion, Jesus is the one who saves. And we all are desperately in need of him. This phrase, in him, if you look from verses 3 through verse 14, it shows up a number of times. In fact, Paul uses this phrase 169 times. You know how many times the word Christian shows up in the Bible? And neither of them are used by Christians. The term Christian was used by those outside of the church as an insult to those who followed Jesus, much like the term Jesus freak was intended to be an insult or shameful. But in the eyes of Paul, the definitive characteristic of someone who belongs to Jesus is that they are in Christ. Because those who are in Jesus are transformed by Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In him, we have a deeper satisfaction than anything we can find in the world around us. In him, we have hope and joy, peace and confidence. In him, we have life. And I'll just be honest with you, I like this so much more than the term Christian. 
Christian has become, especially in recent years, kind of a meaningless label. It's a title that we use, it gets stamped on things, and some of the people that use it, man, they are devoted and passionate about Jesus, and other people that use it, you couldn't see Jesus reflected in a single aspect of their life. It's been tossed around so liberally that it's lost all meaning, but in him, in him is not a label. In him is a statement of belonging. It's to find our identity in Jesus, our purpose in Jesus. To be in Jesus is to be the possession of Jesus, which is further reflected in Paul using the word sealed. Okay, when he talks about a seal, he's not talking about Tupperware, right? Where he's like, oh, I got to make sure you get the sealed really good so when you put it in the fridge, it doesn't spoil or make the fridge smell funky. I thought the fridge just did that on its own. I apparently am wrong. In the ancient world, a seal was used as an indication of possession or ownership. It was like a stamp that you put on something so that everybody else would know that it was yours. The seal of God on his possession is the Holy Spirit. So one of the questions I got last week that was a really just a great question is, okay, if, if salvation is a choice that I make about God, I know if I made that or not. But if salvation is about God choosing me, how do I know if I'm chosen? It's a fantastic question. Here's how. The Holy Spirit is the seal of belonging to God. And where the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit produces fruit. Galatians tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So where the Holy Spirit dwells, those characteristics will be growing and maturing in our lives. But there's actually an even simpler way to know. Do you want to belong to Jesus? Do you desire it? Do you want to be his, want to honor him, want to follow him, to obey his instructions, to seek him? Because what Jesus calls us to do, if you actually look at what Jesus calls us to do and be, everything about what Jesus tells us to do runs contrary to our own nature. Right, like die to yourself, deny yourself, take up a cross, like none of that sounds fun. Think I'm gonna pass on all of it if it's just me. It is impossible to desire obedience to Jesus without the Holy Spirit working on your heart. It is impossible to seek him, to genuinely want him, to desire to honor him and obey his instructions without the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the seal. So the question is, do you desire and do obedience to Jesus and a relationship with Jesus? Not do you perfectly carry it out, but do you desire and strive for it? Because if the answer to that is yes, the only way you can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you have the seal of God. You are the possession of God. And what starts off sounding unnerving is actually one of the most comforting truths in Scripture. If you want Jesus, it's because you have been sealed by his Spirit and you belong to him. Because before the foundations of the earth, God chose you to be his. Adopted you into his family. Jesus paid your price and my price so that we could become children of God. And not only in that do we receive forgiveness from our sins, a new name, a new identity, a new hope and eternal life, we also receive an inheritance. And so what Paul refers to here as the guarantee of our inheritance, don't you think of that like a down payment on a house? Okay. So here's where that gets really cool. The fruit of the Spirit, like if you think about those qualities, does it, they make life better? Guys, it's not a funeral. You're allowed to make noise. It's okay. 
We don't have ladies with rulers that are like three feet long. If you make a sound, we're going to smack you with them. It's okay to make noise in church, all right? Does love make your life better? Joy, does it make life better? Peace? Patience? No, patience is the worst. That was a trick question. You were doing so well. No, okay, like... Gosh, learning patience is the absolute worst. But the fruit of the Spirit is meant to enhance the quality of our life. So take all of that. Take every encounter and moment that you've had with God in your life. From the first time you heard, your sins are forgiven. To the first time you understood what Jesus endured on the cross out of his great love for you so that your sins could be forgiven. Take every time you felt his presence his comfort, his power, his love, his grace, as he lavished them upon you. Take the awe and the wonder of Jesus in your life that leads you to worship. Take all of that, put it together. You know what you have? A down payment. That's not even the fullness of the blessing. That's not the fullness of the gift. What it is is, man, Jesus is preparing for us an eternal banquet that has no end. And all the incredible great moments that you've had with him and the wonder that he's done in your life and the transformation that he does in you, that's the little sampler that you get from Costco, right? That little thing in the plastic cup that you're like, cool, this is like a little niblet. It's not even going to satisfy your hunger. It's just going to make your hunger mad, right? Every great thing that God has done in your life is just the taste of what is to come and the greater feast that we long for in Christ Jesus. Like, how cool is that? And with that, we wrap up the longest sentence in the Bible and immediately jump into verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Paul rejoices in the church, in their faithfulness, in their faith, and their love for all the saints. That word all, it's kind of important. Right? They weren't just loving people that looked like them, talked like them, dressed like them, voted like them, and shared their convictions. They loved all the saints. And this is something that historically the church has not been great at. We're not always good at loving people in their mess. We're not always good at loving people in their brokenness, in their struggles and in the storms that they experience. We're not always good at loving people who are different than us. So much so that sometimes we feel entitled to withhold our compassion from people who do not share our convictions. Because sometimes we care more about being right than we do about offering the grace of God that we have received to others. But that's not what's happening in Ephesus. The Ephesian church is loving all the saints, even the unlovely ones. 
Now, if you've been in church for a minute, or even if you've like never stepped foot to the door somehow, you've probably heard this. In the Greek language, there are four words for love. And the big exciting one that everybody wants to talk about is agape, which we use to describe the unconditional, unmerited, unrelenting love of God. Guess which word's used here? Agape. The unfathomable love of God. But here, the ones offering that love, it's not God. It's the church of God loving the people of God with the unconditional love of God. And Paul does two things here. He starts off by thanking the church and expressing that he never ceases to be thankful for them. See, to express thankfulness is to express honor. And so in the spirit of that, I would like to do that. If I were to list out all the things that I'm thankful for you and for this church for, we just don't have time for it all. The personal reasons, the professional reasons, the pastoral reasons, but I am thankful for you and for this church. I'm going to give you a couple of the highlights. I'm thankful that this is a place where everybody is welcome because you have made it a place where everyone is welcome. Right? It doesn't matter if somebody walks in with a ratty shirt smelling like they've been sleeping in a bowling alley from the 90s or if they come in in a three-piece suit looking like Elon Musk is their personal butler. <laughs> you love them the same. You welcome them the same. I watch it happen as I look around and people are just moving around, talking to each other, engaging with each other. we got a, a few of you that we need to save out of your assigned seat, but the rest of you really just do a great... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep jabbing at that till you move, Okay. <laughs> But you do this incredible work of talking to people and engaging with people and making sure at least they get a hello and a how are you kind of thing, but just the welcoming that you have. Like we've had people that have come here for months whose lives, even years at times, whose lives are clearly not in line with what we believe about Scripture. But you didn't chase them like Frankenstein's monster with pitchforks. You loved on them. You made a place where they could be safe and they could hear the gospel and not a lot of churches do that. I'm thankful that this is a place where people are safe to come in their sin and hear about Jesus because if the church stops being a place where sinners can be, what are we doing here? I am thankful for a church that has a heart for people the way that Jesus has a heart for people. I'm thankful that this is a church that worships God with your heart. Of course, I use this as an illustration the one day that all the students are not here. <laughs> like, perfect. But the, one of my favorite things to do, especially on Sundays that I teach, is to just come out and watch the students worship. Like, if you sit in the back and you're like, cool, I can see the screens and nobody can see me, you're missing out on one of the coolest parts of worship, which is watching the young people who are typically sitting like right in this front region here, worshiping with passion, with energy, with heart, like the way they were. I mean, it gets me in the feels like every time, and I don't even like having feelings. But to see young people whose hearts are captivated by Jesus is truly powerful. And then to see it spread all throughout the church. Like this is something that's happening a lot more and more where you guys are getting into worship and hands are going up in the air. And when the people step off the mic on stage, you can still hear singing because it's not karaoke night from the band. You guys are involved. You're investing in worship. And I'm thankful to be a part of a church that has a heart for worship. Now listen. Okay, if you're one of those people that's like, I don't put my hands in the air, I'm never doing the Statue of Liberty during worship, it's not going to be a thing. What I like to do is I like to keep my hands in my pocket like I'm constantly looking for my car keys, that's my move. <laughs> Listen, praise God, he's looking at your heart, not your hands. 
But I am thankful to be a part of a church where you can lift your hands without everybody wondering what you're doing. Because you have a heart to worship and you engage worship with your heart. Goofy one, because I can't not do one goofy one. I am thankful that you guys are starting to learn that this is not a funeral home and you're allowed to make noise. Okay? Because like this was the thing. For a long time when I started off, I would say something and people afterwards, they'd be like, I was cracking up so hard when you said that. I was like, really? Because I paused afterwards, and what I heard was, <laughs> is that what your laugh sounds like? It sounds like crickets? You should, you, that's a weird laugh. You should work on it. <laughs> Even to the point where like, people like, make jokes while I'm up here talking. I'm like, great, that's okay. That engagement, it makes things more fun. It's more exciting. I like it. So I'm thankful that you guys are engaging a little bit more, and you're less afraid to, like, like, I'm not a T-Rex up here, like, if you move, I'm going to get you. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the thing that I'm thankful for you the most is that you have a hunger for the Word of God. Okay? Like, there are places, let me just tell you, there are places where you go where the guy gets up on stage and he's like, here's my Bible. That's the last time I'm going to reference that. And then moves on. That would not fly here. Because you guys have a love for the word, and I love that. To be a part of a church that hungers to know God and to grow in him. Because I'm not qualified to stand up here and give you a spiritual TED talk. Okay? Like, I don't want you to want to know what I think about things. What I think is dumb. What I think is ridiculous. You should not listen to that nonsense. What you listen to is the word. What you respond to is the word. And the coolest part for me is that I don't have to be Pastor Mary Poppins going, here's the spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. I can just tell you what the Bible says, and you receive it. Because you're not sitting here going like, oh, please don't offend me or step on my toes. You're sitting here going, I want to know more about Jesus, and I want to live for him, and I want to honor him in my life. And you're a hunger for what the word says, and your desire to be faithful to it. I cannot express enough the thankfulness I have for that. Because look, I, I am not oblivious to what I am. Okay, I spent years going, I'm not allowed to be in ministry because I've met me. I know my personality, and I grew up in church listening to these guys talk. I'm like, I can never do that. I like to push the buttons way too much. Like, and I have times where I say things, and I'm like, oop, you better go polish your resume after that one, because they are going to chase you out of town. And people are like, oh, you're going to get an email. After you said that, you're, you're going to get a bunch of emails. I'm like, yeah. Honestly, I don't. I can address, Rick, Mark, we can address the hard truths of Scripture we can te teach the gospel in a way that is convicting and powerful and we're not getting emails going, what is wrong with you, you big jerk, you made me feel bad. What we're getting are questions. Good, how do I understand this? What do I do with this? I don't have enough words to express how thankful I am to be a part of a church that wants to grow and know Jesus better. See, we live in a world that's built on criticism and division and tearing each other down. What if we were different? I'm not suggesting that this room full of people were all gonna just like change the world overnight, but what if we made this place different? What if we made thankfulness and expressing thankfulness normal? Right, where you go, when you go over here, you're picking up your kids from the children's ministry. What if we're just thanking the teachers? Thank you for sharing the gospel and investing in my kids and helping me share the gospel with them. Thank you for taking time out of your week to do that. For our sports ministry, you know we have thousands of families every year that come through our sports ministry. Many of them don't go to church. 
We have coaches who are busy people, who live busy lives, who are taking time out of their week. What if we just went to those coaches and said, thank you for taking time to invest in children, invest in our community despite your busy schedule? To our group leaders who help us build community, to the people at the doors who make us feel welcome when we walk in. But not just that. Like, what if we were just like looking for things to be thankful for about other people? Like, hey, you know what? I come in and I see you on Sunday and you always have a smile on your face and it just makes me feel happy. Thank you for bringing a little extra joy in my week. Like, what if we made thankfulness a part of our culture to where we're just annoyingly, obnoxiously, always expressing thankfulness towards one another to build each other up and encourage each other to go in contrast with the world that's always trying to bring people down? What would that look like? Can you imagine walking in after a long week where you just feel like everything went wrong and you're questioning your purpose and your effectiveness to just have some random person that you don't know well or someone that you do Express thankfulness for something that you didn't even realize you did? How powerful and affirming that would be? The second thing Paul does here is he prays for the church. He prays for the church, not about the church. Anybody know the difference? Praying about is a lot of times what happens at prayer meetings. Where somebody's like, I got a prayer request. I want to pray for my neighbor Sally. Like, she's just a mess, okay? I'm outside, I'm gardening, and I can hear her yelling at her husband through the walls of her house, and she says words that my good Christian ears don't like to hear. And she's, man, she's got some struggles with her kids, and, you know, she's trying, but she's just a mess, and her kids, they're all into drinking now. And can we just, like, pray for them? Right, and basically what it is, is it's a great big long gossip session where you're confessing other people's sins, and then you say, let's pray for them at the end, and that makes it okay. That's what praying about is. Praying for is going into the presence of God on behalf of someone else, praying that God's blessings, love, and grace would be poured out on them. Not trying to use God to change other people, but just pouring a heart, your heart and your love into who they are and what God is doing in their life. Paul prays for the church, not about the church. He prays first and foremost that they would know Jesus. In John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life. They may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life is knowing Jesus. And so Paul's prayer for the church is they would consistently be growing and know Jesus more every single day. That they would be growing in that knowledge and that relationship with him. Because this word for knowing, it's not knowing facts about. It's not being really good at God trivia. It's the same word that is used to describe Adam and Eve's relationship where Adam knew Eve, right? It is an intimate, personal knowing. See, sometimes, like guys, if, you've been, if you're married, like, right, if your wife says, hey, what do you know about me? And what you've got is, hey, you're 5'4", you got brown hair, brown eyes, and you wear size 7 shoes, and that's what you have to offer, guess what? You're in trouble. Because <laughs> your wife, she wants you to know more than some stuff about her, random facts, She wants you to know her personally, intimately. That's life. That we would know Jesus and he would know us. It's not just memorizing a bunch of scriptures. Remember that the Pharisees in the first century, they knew the Bible so well. They were experts on the word of God. And then they murdered the son of God because they didn't recognize him. Don't get so caught up in knowing about that you forget to know the one who wrote the book. The second thing that he prays for is 
that their eyes, it's basically spiritual enlightenment, that their eyes would be opened, that they would see as God sees. It's perspective. And he focuses on three things, hope, blessing, and power. Hope is one of the most dynamic factors in our lives. Without hope, our circumstance becomes our God. Without hope, we are defined by our storms, our struggles, and our problems. And, and some of us, right, we're not allowed to say it in church because you're supposed to be okay if you come in to walk through the building. Like everything's supposed to magically, like your problems you just go away, which is ridiculous. But some of you feel like you're stuck right now. And you don't know how to get out of the situation you're in. You don't know how to fix the problems that you have. And you feel hopeless. Because you are not walking and living in the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. The riches is a reference to our inheritance that we have in Jesus and the power. Well, Paul talks a lot about power in this next section. In fact, he crams a whole bunch of power words into it. So we're going to read verse 19 again and then through the end of the chapter. And what, is a, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, this is where we get our word for dynamite, towards us to believe, according to the working, which is where we get our word for energy, of his great, the word great here means ability to conquer, and might, which is physical force, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the power that's being described is the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. Salvation is the work of Jesus. Eternal life comes from Jesus. Hope is in Jesus. And the power of our resurrection is from Jesus. And it is a power that death itself cannot contain. Okay, so this is where our confidence comes from. This is where our hope is built. Because sometimes we struggle. Like, how do we know, right, that that Jesus' salvation, right, is greater than my sin? How can I be confident? How can I know that what Jesus did is good enough to cover me? Because what we say all the time is you don't know where I've been. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the mistakes I've made. Guess what? I don't have to. Because I know that no matter what you did, what Jesus did is greater. Well, that's bold. How can you make such an audacious statement? Because the greatest power of sin is death, and God's power defeated death. So we can have confidence in Jesus. We can have assurance in Jesus that his power is enough no matter how great our sin is because Jesus has power over death, and sin's power ends at death. Paul just breaks out into song, praising the greatness and the wonder of who Jesus is because this whole section just reads like a song. Remember who this is, right? This is the guy who traveled around hunting Christians, killing Christians, and arresting Christians, throwing them in jail simply because they followed Jesus. And then what happens? Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, Paul encounters Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He's suffered for Jesus. And now he cannot stop singing about how great Jesus is. Above all things, his Jesus. 
exalted and lifted above all, more deserving, more worthy than all things, is Jesus. And his power, his rule, and his authority are absolute. What that means is that Jesus can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and there's no force that can stop him, nothing that can hold him back, nothing that can hinder him doing what he wants to do. So, church, the greatest authority in existence, the highest power that has power over all things, that spoke the universe into being and sustains all life through his power, wants you to be his. That's the gospel. An authority that cannot be overruled, a power that cannot be rivaled once you paid the price for you and me on a cross so that we could become his family. That we could become children of God as the body of Christ. This term is used all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament especially, that we, as those who are in Christ, are the body of Jesus. Jesus is the head. We are the body This is how great God's love for you is. That the God who spoke the universe into being, who conquered death and has power over all things, who can do anything, chooses to view himself as incomplete without us. And the problem that we have in the modern church is that we have a deficient view of Jesus. We come to him like he's Santa Claus. He's a genie in a bottle. Like, I'm going to have a relationship with Jesus so that he can do this and fix that and bless me in this and take care of all my problems. Like, no, 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 no. The greatest thing that Jesus can give you is Jesus. We come to him, though, like he's fire insurance. Like, oh, I want to go, I have Jesus so that I can go to heaven because I want to go to heaven. That's backwards. The purpose of Jesus is not to get us to heaven. The purpose of heaven is to be with Jesus. And Paul, who just wrote a 200-word sentence and packed like every Greek word for power into one thought that he could possibly come up with, it's like he can't find enough ways to express how great and amazing the treasure of Jesus is. And yet we turn him into an afterthought. The means to an end. He's not the means. He's hope. He's not the means. He's life. Because church, like you and I, we are not imperfect people in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a savior. We brought sin into the world. We sinned against God. And that sin, it broke everything. We are broken people living in a broken world and we have no ability to repair or fix ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is it doesn't matter how you got broken. It doesn't matter what led you to where you are. It doesn't matter if you were broken by religion or broken by rebellion. Jesus is the one who can fix you. And not only does he have the ability to fix you, but he has the willingness and the desire to do so. It doesn't matter how good you think you are or how bad you think you've been. 
Jesus wants you to be his. He bled for that, died for that, conquered death for that, so that you could become his children. His family. And the greatest, most comforting truth in the gospel is that salvation is not your work. Salvation is the work of Jesus. Our inheritance is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Our power is Jesus. Our life is Jesus. Everything that we do and are flows from him. Our identity is in the greatness of Jesus. And in him, we have the power to overcome sin. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have the hope in every circumstance because there is no storm greater than his ability to calm it. In him, we have freedom from sin and victory over death. In him, we have life. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, am I in him? Not just like, did my parents take me to some crazy old building with stained glass windows where a dude was wearing window dressings and a pointy hat sprinkled water on my face? Am I in him? Not do I call myself a Christian. Not that I say a magical prayer. Am I in Jesus Seeking Jesus, belonging to Jesus. Have I defined, am I defining and viewing myself as belonging to him? Am I in Jesus? Last week, I talked a little bit about our adoption of our son, Rowan. There was something before that. Before we'd been chosen by his mother, We'd had another selection. We'd gone to the hospital. My wife had cut the cord from a little baby girl who we had in our room for three days. Held her. She slept on my chest for three days. And then on the day the papers were gonna get signed, the mother decided to parent. And the nurses that came, and they took the little girl away. <laughs> and there was nothing I could do about it. We wanted to adopt this little girl, but she was not ours to adopt. They called it a, a failed adoption. But I tell you the greatest news in the world. <laughs> Jesus never has failed adoptions. Not one. When Jesus sets his sight on you, this is the beauty of his power and authority that when Jesus says, I'm going to make you mine, there's nobody that can come in. Nobody who can take you out of his arms. No one that can pull you from him. If he says you're mine, there is not a force in this world that can stop that from happening. Jesus cannot fail to do what he decides to do. And he decides to adopt all of his children into his home, into his life. And it cannot and will not fail. 
So you can sit there all day and go, yeah, but I keep making mistakes and I keep messing up. I can tell you the same thing every time. I don't care. Because Jesus doesn't fail even when we do. And if he seeks to make you his child, you will be his child. And you will never have to fear anyone taking you from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to say that and forget the significance of what that means that you choose to make us your children, that we can call you Father, that we can come to you like a Father, that you love us like a Father. God, I pray that we would all not just use Christian as a title in our lives, but that we would be in Jesus, living for Jesus, focusing on Jesus, defining and seeing ourselves by who Jesus is in our lives. May we who belong to you live our lives all about you, focused on you, centered on you. May we feel the warmth of your embrace. For those who are struggling, God, that they would receive your comfort. For those who are hurting, they would receive your peace and your healing, God. For those who are afraid, that they would receive your courage. But that we would all experience the lavish blessing of your love and grace as you pour it out upon us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace.